All right, um, Genesis 37. Tonight, I'm going to read through it and we'll come back and talk about it. And yet, we got a boatload of cross references, and we'll get to those more towards the end of the study, and we'll just kind of go through them, but it's kind of good to see them. There were actually a lot more than that, and I cut a bunch of them. It's one of, the, one of them studies. I don't know what to tell you. But, uh, okay, 37, verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And this is the history of Jacob, and it will be the history until the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. And now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son in his old age. And he also made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, well, they hated him and could not even speak peaceably to him. And now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and then, behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream at this time. The sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. And so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And then his brothers went to feed their flocks in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And so he said to him, Here am I. And so he said, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. And so he sent them out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. And now a certain man found him and there, and he was wandering in a field, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? And so he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, Well, they've departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they uh, said one to another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of these dreams of his. And Reuben heard it, And he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring them back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, and and they took him and cast him into a pit, And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal, and they lifted their eyes and took and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices and balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. And so Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite, uh, the Midianite trav, uh, traders, then Midianite traders passed by. So his brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, "The lad is no more, and I, well, where shall I go?" And so they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. 
And they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether this is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down to, into my grave to my son in mourning. And thus his father wept for him. And now the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an office of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. Genesis 37, the context really is the past few weeks, maybe a month ago we were in chapters 29 and 30. And Jacob, you know, loved Rachel from the beginning. He's the one that, she's the one that he saw at the well. And he, she's the one that he fell in love with. And, uh, but then Laban tricked, right, with uh, Leah. And he wakes up after the wedding night next morning and there's Leah. Has to work another seven years for Rachel. Leah knew that she was not loved like Rachel. And God even saw that she was unloved and opened her womb. But the fact that she was unloved was an affliction, the Bible says, on her. She, she saw it as an affliction when she'd have a child. You know, this one will remove that affliction on me that my husband doesn't love me. And, um, but the fact was that she was unloved. Jacob's heart belonged to Rachel, and he was not attached to Leah uh, like he was to Rachel, if at all. She would have another son and say, maybe now he'll be attached to me. And um, Leah's first four children were Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and then Judah. Rachel's barren, so he gives, uh, she gives uh, Bilhah, her maid, to Jacob for two children, Dan and Naphtali. They would not be her own flesh and blood, but she saw that as a as a victory, saw that as a consolation because it says she envied Leah because Leah was having kids. And she saw this as prevailing over Leah because all along Leah was trying to win Jacob for herself. And so there's this rivalry. Leah had stopped bearing, so she gives her maid Zilpah to Jacob for two more children, Gad and Asher. I don't think it's a stretch to assume that Rachel had her own tent and Leah with her own and her maids, and you know, on either side they'd have their maids with them. Uh, maybe they had their own little tent, or maybe they all stayed in the same tent. But each their own children with them, and so these boys are all growing up in this atmosphere of rivalry and competition and uh, envy and jealousy. Um, it seems like Jacob mostly dwelled with Rachel, and if you remember the story, there was a time that uh, Reuben came in from the fields with some, uh, uh, what was it called, um, the uh, mandrakes. And the mandrakes were supposed to be some kind of uh, help and some kind of medicine for all that. And so, um, you know, she makes a deal. And so it seems as though that Jacob had been staying with Rachel and Leah makes a deal. Okay, you can have some mandrakes and, and you can have Jacob for a while. And... Uh, or give me Jacob for a while. And so um, God opens Leah's womb. She bears two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. And then a daughter, Dinah. And we talked about Dinah last week or a week or so back. And um, so even after all these, you know, you look at what, what Leah is saying. She's still hoping and wishing that Jacob would love her more and dwell with her instead of dwell with Rachel. And then it says, God remembered Rachel, opens her womb, and she has Joseph. And when God brings Jacob from Bethel back to his home, to his father's home, Isaac, along the way, Rachel is now hard in labor, and she gives birth to Benjamin, but then she dies. So Benjamin is now Jacob's 12th son. And so the Rachel, the one whom Jacob loved more than any, other has died, and her son Joseph is Jacob's favorite. Uh, he's the, the son in his old age, we read here in chapter 37, and she, he's the son of Rachel that she bore him, and then she bore him Benjamin. Um, I don't think uh, 
it's much of a stretch to say that after this, Bilhah was um, Rachel's maid and probably stayed in that tent, in Rachel's tent, with those four boys, her two and then Rachel's two, and raised them. And still Leah had her whole bunch over in the other tent and all. And um, so there's ongoing, there's, there's still this disdain, there's still this competition. And all these boys grew up watching this. By the time we get to Joseph, Joseph, Reuben is probably 20 years old, you know, or close to it. But when he's born, and now, uh, as we read in chapter 37, the first thing we see is that Joseph is 17 years old. So here's uh, Reuben is probably in his 30s, upper 30s. And so they grew up in all of this. There's attitudes going on. There's competition. Uh, the moms were, were jealous and envious of each other. And here these boys grew up watching that this whole time. Um, that's the context, really, of what we what we uh, have. I mean, even Reuben was the oldest and not really blind to this rivalry. And then uh, the next two after him were Simeon and Levi. They were the ones that were the violent ones, remember, and uh, slew those guys at Shechem. And, uh, you know, and I, we talked about that. But, you know, truth is, you got to defend your family. We talked about the violence. We talked about how cruel they were and, and how that was a, a stain on them and their character. Nevertheless, um, they... They, they defended their family. They went after the one that uh, was stolen away. Um, and now we read in this chapter, Judah, the fourth son, we, we'll get to that a little later. Here he is. He's the one that wants to sell. So Leah's first four are the ones um, that uh, are part of this. Um, the context, really, of all of this is um, envy, jealousy, and rivalry. Reuben didn't even respect uh, his dad and went and slept with Bilhah, you know. After all this, um, so it was a. It's just something's going on in this in this uh, little clan here, if you will. So Joseph was out with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, and he brings back a bad report to Jacob. And uh, so even the sons of his own mother. Uh, or his own mother's maids, maid and their kids, and his brother Benjamin, is probably a little younger, so it doesn't apply, they all hate him. And uh, he brings back this bad report from, from not Leah's kids, but the maid's kids. And uh, we'll read about that a little bit old, uh, later. But verses 1 through 4, Jacob dwelled in the land where his father was a stranger. Remember, they're a stranger in this land. This is not their home. They're not putting down roots. They're living in tents. Um, and remember, he told God told Abraham that they're going to send him down to another land. It would be there 400 years, and then come back when the sin of the Amorites is full. Um, so Joseph says here, first thing we learn about him is, like we said, he's 17 years old, and he brings a bad report. And now the word bad report there is whatever is evil or wrong with things that he saw. Uh, the word is actually kind of used for slander. Sometimes uh, this is not what's saying about Joseph, but it was like he was out there and he was kind of the narc, really, of what is kind of being said there. Uh, whatever he saw, and he didn't seem to mind telling his father. You know, he's kind of a little tattletale kind of guy. The youngest of all these, you know, they're all you know somewhere from you know five to fifteen years older than he is, or more, even more than that. And so, but it doesn't say that he was haughty or arrogant or anything that like that. It's more like he was naive. I don't think if he knew how much they hated him, he would be doing this. Uh, he's, he's only 17 years old. He's probably not real wise in things of discretion and you know how to act and behave and what kind of things to say. And so it, it just says that he uh, just gives his father this report. Um, but he's loved by his father, it says right here more than his brothers. And then Jacob tags him with this coat of many colors, so it's like everybody knows he's his favorite. And he's got this colored tunic, and, and basically here's this constant reminder uh, from our dad that he's the favorite one, and we're, I guess, second-class citizens. you know. And so this hatred just builds, and this jealousy and all, and doesn't seem to help much. He gets his own jacket of many colors. And it says they hated him. Uh, because they saw Jacob's love for him. 
to the point where they couldn't even speak kindly to him. They couldn't even be civil with him in verses 1 through 4. And in 5 through 11, Joseph has dreams. Had a dream and told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. He's, his, they're all sheaves in the field. They were all binding sheaves. And, all, and his stands upright. And theirs all bow down. Well, this is, they obviously interpret it as, well, you mean we're going to all bow down to you? And they hated him even more. And uh, then he has another dream. And uh, that, that one would be fulfilled, and we'll talk about it a little bit but in a few weeks, but uh, we'll see when, when Joseph, we saw how he was sent down to Egypt to Potiphar's house. And, and um, we, if we haven't been through the story, we'll get to it, but if you've been, through here, you know that he gets raised up in Egypt to the point where he does. And what do they go down there for? There's a famine. They go down there for wheat. This is a prophecy, really, and it's a dream that does truly come true, that for wheat, for sheaves of wheat, his stands up and all theirs bow and fail in the famine, and they have to go down to him to get it. And so it's a prophecy. Um, Then he would rise above his father and mother also and his 11 brothers, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Jacob knows what that means. You mean, you know, mind yourself there, Joseph. Your mother and I and your brothers are going to bow down to you. But it says Jacob kept it in mind, or he pondered it. Um, and it's believers, you know, who know what God does. Jacob had dreams. God spoke to him in dreams. And believers who know what God's going to do, they keep things in mind when they see him. Uh, remember uh, Simeon and Anna when Jesus was brought to be dedicated at the temple. They had been waiting for the Messiah. Uh, and uh, he shows up, and there's what they were waiting to see. And they rejoiced in it, and it filled them up. Now my, um, boy, that's almost worth going to, but um, Mary also, when was uh, told she'd be with child, you know, um, she, first thing that she says before she even starts to feel pregnant is she pondered these things and kept all these things. Then when Jesus is in the temple at 10 years old and he's ministering to all these guys in the temple, she sees that and she keeps these things. She ponders these things. Jacob kept it in mind. He's having dreams. I had dreams. I saw heaven open up and a ladder, angels going up and down. And uh, so Jacob keeps this in mind. Um, and indeed, we'll see that dream fulfilled later in Genesis when they all go down to Egypt. Now, this passage is important for interpreting other scriptures. And just a quick sidetrack. Um, you've heard me talk about inductive Bible study and, and all. There's three things. It's observation. You just look at the text. Then there's interpretation. You, you find the meaning of that text. And then there's application. You apply it to your life. Um, rule number one for interpretation is let scripture interpret scripture before you ever go to your commentaries or, or you, you look through scripture and see what it is. And this is one of those passages where Jacob or uh, Joseph dreams and the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars. Um, if you want to turn to Revelation 12, 1 through 6, and while you're going there, you know, God uses the sun and the moon and the stars as a sign uh, throughout the Old Testament to all that as long as there's going to be a sun and a moon coming up every single day, then Israel is going to remain a nation before God. He says so. And um, indeed, uh, the sun and the moon and the stars will be darkened, it says in the book of Joel, and heaven and earth are going to flee away, and the stars and, and all of that. But, uh, you know, he's going to be faithful to keep his word. And, and he said the sun and the moon and the stars will not depart. And you can look in Psalm 80, write this down, you can look in Psalm 89 and Jeremiah 31, and you'll see where he says that. In other words, until something major happens in what's going on outside, he's going to keep Israel as a nation before him and uh, his people, and he will be faithful to them. And this is an encouragement to uh, us, because if he's so faithful to Israel, even after 2,000 years, um, and uh, he'll be faithful to us. And I, I 
you know, if you want to read Revelation 12, 1 through 6, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. He, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness and where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. It's a big Bible study in Revelation right there that we can't do right now. The point is, a lot of people think that Israel was replaced by the church. All the promises, all the prophecies, uh, all the fulfillments of prophecy were fulfilled. The preterists are those that think it happened in the first century. When Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem, that was the book of Revelation, that was Armageddon, that was uh, the abomination of desolation. And they have no other way. Now, that belief developed you know, some 500 years after, uh, 500 A.D., after the church was kind of married into politics and married into uh, Alexander the Great made Christianity popular. Or you couldn't beat them, might as well join them. And so that's when this belief came along that, well, Israel's not a nation anymore and this prophecy's got to be about something. It must be about the church. Well, there's two problems there. First of all, uh, she's pregnant. And the bride of Christ is not going to be pregnant before the wedding. And then secondly, uh, who's this red dragon that's, that's coming? But if you take this passage and you want to know who this woman is that's being talked about, the very thing that she's clothed with, uh, clothed with the sun, the moon, under her feet and on her head a garland, 12 stars. If you're going to take scripture and, and use scripture to interpret scripture, there's only one who this can be, the nation of Israel. Jacob, Rachel, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, who does she give birth? Who's this child? Well, it's our Lord, right? Ascended to heaven, taken to heaven, to the throne of heaven. And then once again at verse 6, then he does, the Lord does once again deal with Israel. And they became a nation again in, in 1948. And right now, the news is pointing to a very soon, soon um, fulfillment of all these things. And, um, you know, people are wondering what's going on in the world. This is a good thing that you can use to show God said this was going to happen. You know, how do you know God is God? Because he'll say something before it happens, and it happens. In fact, God said, if it doesn't happen like I said it was going to happen, you don't have to believe in me, you know. And that's why when you were a prophet in the Old Testament, if you were wrong once, they stoned you to death. You don't get to have, uh, you know, what's the guy's name with all the prophecies? Nostradamus. He's right most of the time. Well, if he was wrong once, he should be stoned to death. Because if you're a prophet, you should have everything right the first time and every time, if it's God indeed. So, um, just an a inductive Bible study thing. You know, 2,000 years, like we were talking a couple weeks ago, if you don't know what a, there's difficult things in scriptures if you don't know what they mean you know even if you've got a whole denomination full of people agreeing with you about what it might mean it's not clear then just wait for this prophecy of Israel becoming a nation being coming back in the land in Ezekiel 36 37 38 39 uh, took 2,000 years in fact it was prophesied by Ezekiel way before that 500 years before Christ and so these things are, are, you know, took patience in this period of grace for the last 2,000 years that we've been in. And so um, just to say, you know, it might take patience, but better to wait on the Lord to fulfill his prophecy if you don't understand it than to put some kind of meaning all over it and be in error. And then you build whole denominations around it, and then that affects how you interpret the rest of Scripture. And you know what I mean? These guys that believe the church replaced Israel will now... There's so much that applies. They believe that we're in, the, we're in the millennium right now and Jesus reigns with the rod of iron. Well, surely he is king of kings and does rule, 
but it's not the millennium because Satan is bound, and here we sit. And uh, if Satan's bound, then whatever his chain is has got to be really long. Um, so obviously that's uh, not the correct interpretation, but maybe it's better just to wait and see what the Lord's going to do. In verses 12 through 17, back in Genesis, Jacob sends Joseph out now. Here he was bringing back a bad report with these other guys, uh, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now he sends them out to everyone. They're all out there uh, tending sheep. He wants them to check on their welfare, which basically means is everything going peaceably and soundly? Uh, are, are things going well? He doesn't want a you know, gossip rag back from, from uh, you know, Joseph. I don't care if they're, you know, doing this or that. Are they okay? Are the sheep okay? And uh, Jacob only really seeks to know how it's going and if there's any trouble at all, just to check on their welfare. You don't have to go sniff around and find a bad report. And, you know, Jacob probably sees this. I don't think he understands how much they hate Joseph, but he certainly sees that, that uh they don't like him, and uh, he, he when he brings back bad reports, you know he's got to have that in his his head and heart when he talks to these guys about how things went in the fields. So, but this rivalry, you know, um, I don't think if Jacob knew how much he that they hated him, he probably wouldn't have sent them out there if he knew how much. And this rivalry from their mothers, this envy, is one thing. Um, but I just don't know that he knew how bad it was. So in verses uh, 18 through 24, they see him afar off. You know, they've had enough. They, all they got to do is see him coming across the hill. Probably stands out a little bit with the coat of many colors. And um, as soon as they see him, not even knowing what he's coming for, they plot to kill him. And now this envy, this hatred, this jealousy has become murder. It's become a desire for murder. Reuben's the oldest and probably the most responsible one, just like if in any family of more than one kid, the oldest one is usually the one that's feeling the most responsibility for everybody. And I was the youngest. I didn't care about anything. So I, I don't know. What my I always call my brother the oldest when I see him. And he says, hey, youngest. I got respect for him. I think, you know, he was the one that uh, kind of knew what he had to look out for. and He had his own life, but um, I think that's true of an oldest. Uh, and you guys, if any of you is an oldest, you can let me know. But um, he's responsible, and I think he also fears Jacob. You know, he made his mistake with Bilhah. I don't think that that was something he was going to be feeling real good about, however it happened, whatever led up to that and all. Uh, but I think that Reuben is now saying, you know, I can't do this to my father, Jacob. And so he says, I tell you what, guys, you know, let's put him in this pit over here. And his plan was to go and, and rescue Joseph when they weren't around and bring him back to Jacob. And then in verses 25 through 28, now we got Judah, the fourth oldest of Leah, the first four that were born. Um, and what's his idea? Well, Gee, let's not just let this go to waste. We've got an opportunity here. Let's make some money, and we'll sell him for some silver. And so they sold him, and uh, he's brought to Egypt and then sold to an Egyptian. And then the final verses, they tell Jacob that Joseph is dead. What does Jacob do? Well, he tears his clothes. Um, you know, that's you read about that throughout Scripture, and even when... Uh, the Pharisees were trying to deal with the hard truths that Jesus was laying on them. They thought it was blasphemy. What's the thing to do? You rip your clothes. Well, a little bit of that is if possessions and all, um, we're so used to having all that we need and we got closets full of all kinds of clothes and we can go to the Goodwill or the, 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 um, the one up the street here, I can't remember the name, and you can get your, your clothes. There's no lack of clothes. The first time I went to Haiti, I, I saw something that blew me away. There's, it's a, they're impoverished. There's just, uh, nobody has the possessions. Very few do. I remember the first time uh, we went down there, um, somebody said something about a TV. And like, you know, you, you saw 
on TV, this uh, thing. And they all looked at him like, what? We don't have TVs? Nobody has TVs in Haiti. You're used to it at the time. And, uh, and so, but one thing I noticed was on Sundays, everybody was dressed to the nines. The shoes, the, the socks, the everything, the, the, the pretty dresses. The, the girls would have their hairs all done in the, in the beads. And, the, and it was just, they were beautiful and all. And that was their thing. They had clothes. They didn't have cars. They didn't have houses. The, the beds were, were basically a, a, a bamboo or, or type of a mat that you lay in the dirt and, and everything else. But when it came to what they had and what they wanted to be sure is that when they were wearing clothes, they were the best clothes. And so I think it's, you know, back in the day before there were cars and before there were, you know, TVs and all this back in Jacob's day, you know, if there's a, a disgust, if there's a rage, or if there's a, a sorrow that's so bad, you rip your clothes. Nothing means anything to me right now. And he puts on sackcloth. And... Um, and so he puts on sackcloth, which is just rags, to cover himself. And it says he mourned. And then he refused to be comforted. All these, I mean, these got to think of what's going on through these guys' mind. They're the ones that basically, as far as they know, killed him. And they're trying to comfort him. And they bring him this tunic, and it's full of blood. And uh, they're, they're keeping up this story about an animal doing this when they're the ones that did it. And so, and they all come, they try and comfort him. He refuses to be comforted and says he'll mourn like this until the day he dies to go be with Joseph. And that's interesting the way he words it. Fully confident that he will be raised up from the dead and be with Joseph. And uh, it's a a testimony and a confidence in the resurrection you know, and he then wept. It says he wept over Joseph. And those brothers give the very tunic that always used to remind them of Jacob's love for him over there, over them, and he, they give it to him. And uh, they wouldn't tell Jacob what they did to Joseph. They just let him mourn and weep for his most loved son. And I don't think they necessarily loved their father or respected him if they could do that to him. You know, sit there and watch him mourning and not ever tell him really what happened. Reuben would have been able to tell him, guess what? You know, we sold him. And, well, actually, they all saw that, but uh, they they sold him, and, and they don't know where he is, but they could have maybe chased after that. I don't know. So all of this um, is next to the application. In Acts 7, you don't have to turn there. It says that Joseph, and, you know, this is, Acts chapter 7 was when Stephen stood up and was testifying to the Jews and at the end they stoned him and he saw heaven opened up and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. But in in verse 9, that's where Stephen recounts to all these Jews around him that Joseph's brothers did what they did because of envy. And um, verse 11 back in Genesis uh, 37, it says they envied him. That word is kana or Kanah, same word used really of Rachel over Leah's ability to have children, same word, envy. So what's the difference between envy and jealousy? Um, I had to look it up because, you know, we tend to interchange those, but it really does make sense. I'm sure any of you English teachers know this, but envy is simply the desire for what another person has. You know, whatever, I can envy somebody for having that car or something else, whatever it is. Jealousy, though, involves three persons. When you're afraid of losing or you see yourself losing someone that you love, someone that you have, and you're losing that person to somebody else, that's jealousy. Now, God is a jealous God, the Bible tells us. And he's jealous for his people. He's jealous for us that we don't follow after the world, that we don't fall away after false gods and walk in carnality. He's jealous over us. The word jealous uh, and the same word here, envy and jealousy, come from basically the same root word, which simply means a, a zeal or a desire or a passion after. And so he's zealous for us. He's jealous for us that we don't fall away and follow after the world. He's given us himself. He's given himself for us. 
and we believers, we give ourselves to him, right? And that's our relationship with him. Um, you know, we give him our hearts, we give him our lives in response. And for our own sakes, with great love, he's the one that watches over us and provides for us and protects us and keeps us for eternity. And so God is, you know, his jealousy is a jealousy of love. It's a, a jealousy of kindness, mercy, and it's for our good. And, and again, he gave himself to shame. He gave himself to humiliation on the cross um, for our sakes. He made himself nothing so that we could have everything. He made himself a servant of all that we could reign with him. You know, God doesn't envy anything. You know, he's, he owns everything. He's, he's the possessor of heaven and earth. There's no thing that God needs from anybody. You know, no thing at all. He only has an outstretched hand inviting us to every human being to take that which he has died for and to give them uh, of that inheritance that we all have in Christ Jesus. He gave all so we could have all. But the propensity for us is to envy in our hearts. It's, it's a matter of our own heart. Again, both of these words have to do with uh, you know, that desire, that zeal for something or somebody. Um, you don't have to turn there. If you want to go to Romans 1, while you're going there, Proverbs 6.34 says, For jealousy is a rage of a man, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy is the rottenness of the bones. And Proverbs 27 says, Wrath is cruel, anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? And then even in the Song of Solomon, it says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Because, And then it says, Jealousy, though, is as cruel as the grave, and the coals thereof are coals of fire, which have the most vehement flame. That desire, that zeal, that passion, it's, it's untamable in, in all. And yet, um, and it comes from within our heart, he says. It's a matter of our heart. Romans one twenty eight is um, 28 and 29. He says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, and full of envy. Murder is right after full of envy, and it's interesting. Strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, and it goes on. But notice that, um, you know, it's, where, did, where does it come from? Does something outside of us cause us to envy? Or cause us to have that jealousy that, for something that doesn't belong to us? Well, no. The first place it starts is in our hearts. And because we reject God, or because the, the unbelievers reject the Lord, he gives them over to that which just, they're just full of, that we're full of. We're full of envy and jealousy and all these things, but we trust the Lord. We give ourselves to him. He does not give us over to that. If he did, we'd be just like them, going down the same path. We're all sinners, and yet we're washed in him. In Titus 3.3, 3, it says just what we're talking about. And we'll kind of be going through these a little bit, kind of quick to the end here. Um... It says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, be ready in every good work, to speak evil to no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. That's where we start. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceiving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, which is where you get that hate and murder from, envy, hateful, and hating one another. You know, And so we are the ones that are full of this, uh, before we came to the Lord. We're full of envy. But now, he says we should put it away. In 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, you know, because it seems like a lot of times people think, oh man, I wish I had that. That's not so bad, but uh, the truth of it is that the root of it is envy. And if it becomes something that becomes a desire and a zeal and a passion, and that 
jealousy of of uh, envy of something that somebody else has, uh, something you think you you should have. First Corinthians three three says, "For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men?" Next thing we want to learn about envy is it is carnal. It's a sign of carnality. When you see it, you can know that that's a carnal person, or at least they're in a bad way that day, at the very least. But you can't hardly walk in that now as a believer, can you? And Galatians uh, 5, 16 through 26. And we go here a lot because it's a good list, and it's the contrast. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. He's going to contrast that with the flesh. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, you don't have to worry about not doing stuff. you just got to worry about walking with the Spirit and doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. And that takes care of not doing the other stuff. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the, law work, uh, of, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, and once again, what's right after envy? Murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's funny what's in that list. You think of these things, murder, yeah, I would never murder anybody. Well, we'll get to that. But, you know, whispers and envy and drunkenness, are they that bad that you will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that's what it says. Idolatry, hatred. Um, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. You know, if you love somebody, you're not going to hate them. If you love somebody, you're not going to steal. What did Jesus say? You know, uh, the commandment is love. Because if you're loving, all the rest of them are fulfilled. You're not going to do this thing to your neighbor. You're not going to do this thing to somebody in your family. You're not going to do these things if you love them. Because what is love? Love is selfless. Love is not, you know, so that it's both ways and we both get two sides of this deal in love. You know, that's, that's phileo. That's brotherly. You know, where you're kind of buddies and partners in that but agape love is a love that you give without expecting a return it's the love that jesus gave when he died on the cross that there's nothing we could do to earn he did it all and so the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long-suffering kindness and goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such there is no law and you know if you want to look those words up it's a good bible study you get you know, get your phone with a little blue letter Bible or you just do a Bible study and you put those words on a top of a piece of paper and then you look up all the definitions and then you can maybe look up some of the other ways they're used in Scripture and these are just rich, you know, peace, long-suffering. That's hupomano is the Greek for that. It means that even though there's a burden on top, you bear up underneath it. And that's that staying under that, you know, in that long-suffering and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. You know, some people think it's got to be all joking around all the time. Well, sometimes that's just harsh on people, and it's not necessarily always the thing they need. And uh, self-control, that's really where a lot of things begin, taking our thoughts captive. But it says in 24, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. In other words, what I got's better than what you got. Provoking one another. In other words, see, looky here, look at me. You ain't got anything like I got. Which leads to what? Envying one another. You know, I don't think Jacob knew what he was doing necessarily to those boys when he says, here, I'm going to make this one special. He was. He loved them. That was just what was the case. There's nothing wrong with that. He puts a jacket on them so they all know it and all. And not that Jacob was in sin provoking his, his other sons. That's not what I'm saying. But for us, you know, uh, there's, we shouldn't be conceited about anything of our own. 
and we shouldn't be trying to provoke one another, trying to be competitive, and we'll talk about that a little bit too. But conceited, it means empty glorying in yourself. And in other words, these guys were comparing between one another. They were competitive, always got to be one up or have control over each other. It's a fruit of the flesh, not of the spirit. That's what he says. And if we belong to Christ, we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. It's a sign of someone who may claim to be a Christian, yet they're walking in the flesh, and they're not being led by the Holy Spirit. That, that envying and that provoking. You know, there are those. Let's go to James 3. There are those among believers. You know, whether they're true believers or not, I'm not going to be the judge of that. But if you look at James 3, 14 through 18, talking about envy and what it led to with Joseph and his brothers. It says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. And where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and just a little bit of evil is hanging around there. No, every evil thing. Look at that. How is that possible from envy? You know, we don't realize, do we, what, what we let ourselves go chasing after sometimes. And all of a sudden we find ourselves daydreaming about, if only I had that, if only I had this, if only that person loved me more than, than they loved that other person. And uh, they used to, you know, I used to have them and now they're gone. I'm jealous for them. Those are the things that start bringing upon you every evil thing because then what's, what's left? You can just chase after whatever you want. There's no reason to have any self-control. You're letting yourself trail down that path. James 4, just the next verse over, this is what was going on with Joseph's brothers. Verses 1 through 5. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not because you do not you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, it's because you ask amiss because you just want to spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses. In other words, you're not seeking to be one with the Lord. You're seeking to have all this other stuff. You're chasing after that. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, makes you an enemy of God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. There it is. There's this jealousy that God has for us. Um, But this envy leads to murder, just like uh, Joseph's brothers envied him and hated him, got worse and worse. He tells these stories probably doesn't realize how much they do hate him. He's naive. He's just 17 years old, and they're done with it. They're going to put him away. Um, You know, they made a plan. They were going to kill him. You know, you may really say in your heart, you know, I really hate that guy, but I would never murder him. I mean, come on. You know, what's and what did Jesus say? Look at Matthew 21. Because a lot of times people think, well, a little envy and a little bit of this, you know, a little bit of that. Or, you know, I just don't like that guy. He's just whatever. And you just feel like you have this hatred towards them. But you'd never kill him. I mean, I'm not that bad of a guy. Well, you know, if somebody's got that attitude, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And he goes on to talk about, you know, if you say to your brother, Raka, or um, if you call him a fool. But my point is, you know, this is more than just hatred. You can't hate your brother. You're gonna, it's, it's murder in your heart. Um, Matthew 15 comes right out and says so. Matthew 15, uh, 19. 
and then we'll be going on to 1 John. And it says, For out of your heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemy. These are things which defile a man. He's talking about these guys that wanted to be religious about what they ate and didn't eat and, and all that. And he's making a point that's not hadn't have anything to do with what you eat. It's because what's in your heart, that's the things that are going to defile you. But in First John uh, 2, 8 through 11, if you love somebody, you're not going to do these things because love doesn't do that. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother, he's not in the light at all. He is in darkness even right until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness, walks in darkness, and does not know where he's going because he's been blinded by that darkness. And over in uh, 3, verse 15, it says right out again, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You know, I really hate that guy, but I'd never kill him. Well, guess what? As far as Lord's can, and you know what it is? It's just a lack of opportunity. You know, there were no jail sentences if, if you were still completely uninfluenced by the Holy Spirit and you truly hated somebody. You probably would take the chance if you could. If it's the kind of the guy that's in your face all the time and there's no way to get him out of your face um, and you've got absolutely no restraint on you, no Holy Spirit, no laws, it would, you wouldn't, you know. That, that's the thing that uh, Jesus is saying. You know, hatred is already murder in your heart. And I don't want to belabor that too much, but you know, we it says we're to lay aside in first Peter chapter one and two, we don't have to go there, but because we have such a heavenly inheritance and we live before God and we've purified our souls and we've been born again by the Holy Spirit, um, that's why we lay aside malice, that, that malice, that hatred, uh, and the envying, and we lay aside the envying and the evil speaking. Now, he makes it sound easy, just lay it aside. And, you know, it's not really easy, especially when you find yourself in circumstances, maybe of poverty or, or real needs. Um, but then we look to the Lord. He promised, you know, that he would meet our needs, that he would take care of us, and we would have what we need. And uh, there are those in this world, because Jesus suffered and died on the cross, and they hated him. He says, are we not, or is, is, are we greater than our master, that if we follow him, we're not going to also suffer. So there are those times, and there are those in this world that for naming the name of Jesus, well, they do suffer. They get thrown in jail. And, uh, you know, you see a little of it maybe at work where you get shunned or you get made fun of uh, or something like that. But there are also those things that, um, you know, there are those in the world, those people that are, are put to death for their faith. Nevertheless, what's interesting that James says it was the rich that were among them that never seemed to have enough. It was the rich that were among the church that James is writing to, among the 12 tribes scattered abroad, that were hanging out with the church, that were taking advantage of the very poor that he was trying to minister to and that he was writing to. And so really it becomes a matter of contentment. And a few more passages here, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 12. <clears throat> It really does boil down to a matter of being content. And you know, not even with our eyes on how much we have and it's good enough, but more like on our, with our eyes on the things to come and therefore what matters in this world. You know, as far as what we have. Look what we got in front of us in our future. Um, 1 through 12. Let as many, let as many bond servants, in other words, you got a boss, you got a master, as are under the yoke, count their own masters worthy of all honor, and so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. You know, as be a good worker. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're our brethren. In other words, that's when 
well, he's, he's my brother in the Lord, and how come he gets to run the company and I got to drive the tow motor? Well, because, you know, that's the place that God brought him and where he was and what the Lord did in his life. But rather serve them because who are benefiting our believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which uh, accords with godliness, well, he's proud, knows nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, there it is, strife, revelry, evil suspicion, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness, they want to be Christians, they want to talk about their faith, they want to talk about how good they are, all it is is a means for gain, and from such a one, withdraw yourself, get out of there, you know, just walk away. Because godliness with contentment is great gain, you know, and he, it's a matter of contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, it's, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Boy, is it really worth it. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, patience, gentleness, and it's a fight. You fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of the what? The eternal life to which you were also called and confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What's the final thing we keep our eyes on and what we're supposed to take hold of you know, and what we have to fight to continue to and to have faith to do so? That which lies ahead for us, the kingdom to come eternal life that, ha that we have for us. Um, you know, Bible study tonight on envy because of Joseph and his brothers. Um, just real quick, there is a good kind of hatred. If you go to Proverbs 6, if you don't want, I'll just read them quick. Believe it or not, there is a good kind of hatred. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, it's okay to hate that. A lying tongue, it's okay to hate that. Hands that shed innocent blood, it's okay to hate that. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift to run to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. You know, God hates. The Bible says so. That's a good list to keep in front of you. And when you see yourself leaning, slipping, and sliding toward any of those things, just remember you're, head, you're headed towards a place where God uh, is going to be your enemy. He, he hates that. Um, Proverbs 8, 13, the next page. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and a perverse mouth I hate. There's good things, you know, there are things that uh, it's good to hate. Um, same for jealousy. There's a kind of je jealousy. We were talking about it earlier, because God is jealous for us. He has that zeal, that desire, and that passion for us. And throughout the Old Testament, he's jealous for his people. And sometimes it's coupled with wrath, because they're getting far off. They're getting way off astray. And so he has... Um, through in wrath, he draws them back because he's jealous for them as a desire, as a passion. And, and the last one is, is uh, Titus. There's a good jealousy for us to have as well. In verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, I'll just read them. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching that us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that, we might that he might redeem us 
from every lawless deed and purify us for himself and own, his own special people, zealous. And that's that same word, full of desire, zeal, jealous for good works, to have that passion for good works. And he says, tell everybody this. This is good teaching. That's what Paul tells Titus. So Joseph is sold into Egypt because his brothers were envious and jealous and they wanted to kill him. Uh, They decided to sell him and make some money instead. He goes down to Egypt and God is good because as it turns out, what they meant for evil, God used as good for good. And we'll see that in the weeks ahead. Amen. That's all I got. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do need you so much for all these things and we do want to walk in your peace and be at peace with our brothers and sisters and um, Lord we just want to know that there's a testimony here that the world can say that uh, we they know us because we love one another and we just ask that you continue to work that in our lives and uh, Lord we just pray for uh, your word that it would go out and accomplish all that you desire to do And again, uh, we just ask that you'd be uh, watching over those that are suffering right now in Florida and and even elsewhere around the world, those that are persecuted saints and those that are uh, being killed for their faith in you in many parts of the world. And Lord, keep our our hearts sober before you that we would be full of joy, but sober about things that are serious and, and... We just ask that you'd bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.